Welcome back to Momentum. We are now on episode four, and I am thoroughly enjoying this. Obviously, it's a tremendous workload that goes into putting a podcast out and doing interviews and researching guests and editing, which I am absolutely atrocious at at the moment. But the feedback, I feel like I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but the feedback from you, whoever's listening, the questions, the comments, all of that is has just been so cool for me. I started this podcast with the intention of just trying to deliver resources for people and trying to just help push towards what you want out of life, whatever that is. And so to hear people say, hey, this actually really helped me, that's, that's the whole point of this, um, which has been just awesome. I'm also really enjoying having conversations with the people I'm interviewing, learning myself, and just enjoying the process, so that's been really cool. A few housekeeping things before I get into this interview with Quinn, and I know that this is maybe unorthodox. You're supposed to just give a brief professional intro on who you're gonna talk to and then get into the episode, but for me, this is the only time where I get to, I guess, talk to you guys. And like I was mentioning, I love having these conversations with the people I'm interviewing, but I also love talking to you guys, I guess that's a weird thing to say because I'm currently talking into a microphone on the kitchen table, but communicating with whoever's listening and in the interview format, I obviously don't get to do that that much. So these brief little intros and outros are times where I get to communicate to whoever's listening, like, man, it's, it's cool. I appreciate your posts and comments and feedback. And then also just sort of talk about the direction or future of what I hope to do with this podcast. So in that spirit, just a few quick bullet points. It does seem like solo episodes, I think there's a place for solo episodes. Far and away, the most comments I've gotten have been around, or questions, have been around nutrition, sleep, and energy levels during the day, which kind of, they all, there's a feedback loop there. Um, and a lot of them came from the quorum episode. So I've made several comments about how I like to stay in my lane. I, I'm not going to talk about something that I don't feel like I should talk about. But nutrition and sleep, I'm very home on those topics. Um, those are things that, that I feel like I could do deep dives on that, that would be useful for people. So I think some solo episodes are in the works. And I'm excited to bring those to you. Second thing last and really quick i want to say hello to everyone in india because this has been uh slightly confusing uh perplexing to me but i'm not complaining about it i track the analytics on this podcast and it started out and i was noticing that you know 10 percent of my listeners were coming from india and i thought that was kind of odd maybe it was an anomaly posted another episode it grew to 12 and a half then it was at 15 it got all the way up to 20 and last i checked 25 percent of people listening to this podcast are coming from india i'm not sure why again i'm not complaining about it i think it's insane that i can sit here in my kitchen and talk into a microphone and people very far away can listen to it and get some cool information so anyways hello if you're listening in india and I love you for listening. Anyways, on to Quinn. No more than a 90-second intro, I promise. Quinn is someone who has successfully blended the worlds of strength conditioning and physical therapy, something that's unfortunately rare, but he has a tremendous amount of experience improving performance of athletes, but also managing pain and injury and getting someone from a place of not being able to move properly, whether that's from an injury or just because you're incapable of doing it at the moment because you're too quote-unquote stiff, which is something that we get into. We talk about why are you tight? What Does improving flexibility help you feel better? What are ways that you can improve your range of motion? Quinn has also built a successful business for himself and a successful online brand as a respected authority in the strength conditioning and physical therapy world. So we talk about how he built that. He's also someone who is a self-confessed overanalyzer or paralysis by analysis guy. And we talk about how he kind of overcame that to build what he's built now. We also talk about what he thinks sets apart 
some of the best strength coaches and physical therapists and what he's done to sort of distinguish himself. All in, it was a really interesting discussion and we kind of went back and forth on just what it's like starting something new and getting off the ground and, and some of the hurdles that you face and how you can best overcome them. That's enough from me. Let's get into this episode with Quinn. Cool. Well, I want to do, so I want to hear your background, but I kind of want to do this a little bit backwards first and just go super practical from the beginning. Um, because I've heard you talk about this idea of people talking about tightness and that's usually generally not an issue of tightness and more an issue of maybe lack of coordination, especially with under load. Mm. Um, and I'm thinking like, this isn't a sports performance specific podcast. Like I, I mentioned that to you, but like, it's hard to tassel out how you feel physically with how you perform in other areas of your life. And so I'm just thinking how many people probably listening are like going through this idea where they're tight, they're feeling tight, they stretch, they probably foam roll till they're blue in the face, get the lacrosse ball out and like maybe feel better temporarily and then go right back to, you know, the, the next day they're in their squat and they feel the same way. So I want to like leverage your expertise a little bit and just go really practical from the beginning. And can you kind of elaborate on that idea of coordination versus tightness and all that? Yeah, sure. Um, so it, let's just like create a avatar, I guess, and create an example here. So there's some context. We've all felt, we've all had the experience of doing a movement or some type of physical activity and it doesn't feel super free and fluid and comfortable and let's just take a squat for example if you know if people train the squat or they have done squats and they feel things in their hips uh it just kind of feels crowded it doesn't feel like it just they just go there without any fluid without any effort and you watch other people squat maybe trained athletes who are, uh, there's, you know, professional squatters out there literally, and it looks like they're very fluid with their motions and these types of things. So when we don't have great descriptions for these types of feelings. And so a lot of times we just say, it just kind of feels tight. And that, and that's just the best way that we can conceptualize that. But, you know, from my perspective as a strength conditioning coach and a, as a physical therapist, I have to start to tease that stuff out a little bit in regards to meaning because it depends on the intervention. It, it, it affects the intervention that I prescribe. And so what I mean by that is I tight is if, if that's your description, that's great. We have to parse out though, whether it's your joints literally don't go into that position or is it a skill or a coordinated action that's just beyond your uh repertoire right now and your body doesn't know how to how to quite coordinate the body parts and the joint actions and the muscle activations all in a nice sequence to get the to get the task done and so you kind of run out of bandwidth and and your body kind of locks up or you haven't put your body in a position to to create leverage to even get into whatever the skill is so we have to parse that out do the joints literally not go into the positions or we just don't have the skill for that particular movement pattern. And the reason that's important is because if your joints actually do go into those positions in an isolated fashion, but your intervention is to isolate those joints and tug and pull and smash and mash and foam roll, you're not addressing the issue, which is actually just coordination and skill development. And that's why people spin their wheels a little bit because at least in my experience, it's less common that your joints literally don't go there. And it's much more common that you just haven't honed that skill. And I know squatting seems like a very simple task, but when you're trying to do it in a specific manner with the external load and add fatigue and you know speed and all these types of things, it is a skill. And so we'll take the squat, for example, you know, somebody can't, get into a position or they feel tight in their hips with a barbell on their back, but you take that barbell off their back and you put a kettlebell or a dumbbell in their hands in front of them, goblet squat, and magically yeah. they find depth. I mean, it's, it almost is magic. Um, and that can happen with the front squat. It can happen with like a trap bar or a hex bar squat. It just, it, it, 
it affords different leverages and it just, you have a counterbalance and it's easier to get into position. But that right there, a light bulb should go off and say, oh, my hips do have this. It's just that when I'm locking my arms back behind me, I'm kind of changing my torso position and the counterbalance is different and I haven't honed that skill yet. But that, that is just kind of a simple example of, of breaking it down one level to see if you have the goods from, let's say a hardware standpoint. And then what we're lacking is more of just the software. And that just comes with kind of deliberate practice and, and skill development. But I'll, I'll stop there and say, if you have any idea or thoughts around that, we can keep going. No, that's really good. And I like you mentioned, it's more often than not, not a joint limitation. Um, and so like continuing on this practicality train a little bit, I like the goblet squat that you mentioned. And, you know, so for someone who's, again, lacrosse ball till they're blue in the face, no mm -hmm. change, no change, like even just going along the route of a squat, like what can they start to do to start to feel better? Just start with a goblet squat and work their way. That's one way. We'll just keep sticking with the conversation. So like the, or the squat, the squat example, but the like foam rolling, lacrosse ball, all that stuff. It's not that that stuff is bad. The, the negative comes from just the opportunity cost of doing that stuff in place of, of practice of the yeah. skill or like loaded strategies. And so when I say opportunity cost, it's just like, if you spend time doing something, you're, that's time that you're not spending doing something else. And so you try to pick your, your interventions and activities widely, so you, wisely so you get best bang for buck. And the foam rolling, lacrosse ball, um, the banded mobilization, static stretching, these types of things do create an effect. I mean, you they're sensory things. You feel different. Stretching does increase range of motion. That's just, it's kind of common sense. Like you do a few stretches and you can go further kind of each time your body kind of melts in place. The thing is that's that short-term change is also short-term change that you can just, that you can get by just going through the motion of the exercise that you're trying to get better at. And you get the benefit of the load and the practice of the actual thing that you care about. You're not trying to get, you're not trying to win the gold medal of foam rolling. You're using foam rolling to give you some type of quality. It's just that it doesn't give you much in the long term. It's really just that short-term uh, perceptual change, which is fine. Just understand that that's the limit. It, it just has a very low ceiling in regards to what type of adaptation that it's providing you. And that goes in the, a lot of people are cool with that. And they say, I just like the way it feels. Like, I understand what you're saying, Quinn. Like, it's not doing a whole lot long-term, blah, blah, blah. I just, I still like to do it. It's part of my routine and ritual. I say, that's cool. Like, that's totally fine. Um, if you're complaining about the length of your warm-up, though, maybe we take the 30 minutes of form rolling that you're doing in the beginning and kind of intersperse that within your uh, warm-up sets and rest periods of your actual exercises. And that can be a little bit more efficient use of time. But it, more importantly, it's the people that have kind of caught on to the narrative that the foam roller is somehow breaking up tissue or rearranging your flesh as if it were clay, but somehow not breaking your skin, somehow sparing your nerves and your muscles, but breaking up all the bad stuff. And it's going to give you that kind of like magical structural change. And it just doesn't do that. So that's just an important point. What does change your tissues over time is mechanical load. So that would be lifting lifting the weights, you know, the resistance training is actually what's going to change your, your tissues long-term, but a goblet squat is great. So like that, what it does is it just, it gives you a counterbalance. So like with a back squat, you're worried about falling on your butt, your hands are locked in behind you. It's just kind of an awkward position if you're not used to that, but a goblet squat holding that bell in front of you, your arms and your torso are in a little bit more of a kind of a stacked position where your rib cage just kind of sits naturally over top of your pelvis. You don't have to like have this hard arched position where you're tied up with a back squat and having the weight in front of you gives you a counterbalance. So now you're not going to fall on your butt because you have your, your center of mass has been shifted forward because you have this counterbalance that you're holding in front. So it's just a really nice way to teach somebody how to squat without them having to fight so hard to even just stay on their feet. And that's a great way to do it. And you can add other constraints too. And I use this word constraint as basically you just setting boundary conditions. So you've got the, you've got the counterbalance in front. You can set a box or a medicine ball underneath them as kind of a target or a range of motion constraint. Cause maybe you're seeing as the coach trainer, physical therapist, whatever, 
that they're able to squat down, but at a certain point in the range of motion, it just kind of, the position gets kind of wonky and they can't control it. So you put a box or a med ball right at that, or maybe even just lower. So it's like their technique threshold is being tested with every rep, but it's skill development. And you can put them on a metronome if you really want to get crazy. And like you put them on a tempo so they can't just rush through the movement. So you're putting all of these boundary conditions to where they have to focus on the skill of the movement. There's no wiggle room in that regard. And then you can slowly start to remove these constraints. Self-selected tempo, lower or take away the box completely. Lighter counterbalance, actually harder because you have less help holding you up, putting the bar back on their back maybe putting the box back when we go back to the barbell. So you take some and you give some kind of a scenario, but you're manipulating these variables in a kind of a systematic way. You've got tempo load on the bar, obviously, but the variation of the movement um, range of motion, all of these things you can kind of tinker with to give them an opportunity to actually get into the movement and practice. And that's typically what I'll do. And range of motion improves with repeated practice. You know, that I always say the people who you see who are super duper flexible, it's because I, I used to think this too. I used to see somebody who could just drop into like a beautiful Instagram worthy air squat. And I'd be like, man, that person must just feel so good. They just must feel like free and like they don't feel any, any tension at all. But that's not the case. Like those very people are in my office. Yeah. Like it's still the same. So they just happen to be able to go lower, but they still feel the same stuff. You know, the tissue still gets sensitive with too much loading. You get kind of, you feel kind of weak and achy and antsy if you're not trained at all. And it's, it's all the same. So, um, and having a bunch of range of motion doesn't protect you against injury actually, because it's just more range that you have to be able to control, you know, under load. It's like, Gymnasts are very flexible and, and dancers as well, but they have to be able to control all that range of motion too. So it's, it's not just a free get out of jail free card to be like overly flexible from just kind of a passive stretching standpoint. Yeah. I think that's something that people can take and expand on even just this example of squatting. Like, like you mentioned the opportunity cost of some of this quote mobility work that you're doing. Like if you can just start to move and, you know, even if you just become a more efficient or increase your capabilities in squatting, I think it'll translate over, right? This is something that people can start to expand on. Movement is probably some form of medicine. Oh yeah. And it's so free. Like we, we, another thing that the field has kind of gone towards is this optimal, like movement is optimal. You know, there, there are certain patterns that you do it this way, like very rigid guidelines and rules for movement. But I think movement should be kind of general and free and you should explore these positions. And now when it comes to maximizing performance within a given task, that's when we get into, there are probably positions and patterns that are more conducive to supporting load and more sustainable over time, like no doubt about it. But when it just comes to trying to explore some of this stuff, I think you take away some of those rigid constraints and you just kind of figure it out yourself. Like the squat, you could break it down and say, a split squat is a really nice tool to get somebody used to just flexing and extending at the hips and the knees and the ankles. So you split the feet. Now in the split stance position, you can elevate the front foot. You can elevate the back foot. You can elevate both feet. And that gives you a lot of range of motion. You can take that front knee. So if you're in a split squat and you're say your right leg is in front of you, a lot of times people will coach it with a very vertical shin, that front shin should stay vertical and that's fine but we have ankles for a reason. So what if you say, you know what? I wanna do this split squat where I'm purposely driving that front knee forward a little bit over, over my toes. So I have to load my quad a little bit more and load my knee like I would do in a jump or a sprint or a land. I still have my foot flat, but you're just kind of exploring different options and see how, how it feels to load you know, certain areas based on the position. Um, so I, that's my favorite ankle mobility drill is actually a split squat where we're deliberately driving the front knee forward and we're driving that front heel down. So the foot stays flat, but the knee drives forward and it's under load, you know, it's under your body weight or it's you're holding kettlebells or dumbbells by your sides and no static stretch is putting more mechanical load through your ankle than that. 
And if you're looking for change, I mean, hell, even a calf raise, like an, a, a deficit eccentric calf raise is like that is range, range of motion work. Like that's mobility work. And you're getting, you know, the added benefit of, of strengthening. Useful stuff. I mean, I, I think a lot of people just in the last seven minutes or so that we've been recording will, I'm, I might be way off on the seven minute timer, but get more value from this than what you've heard in the last, you know, amount of years. Just you go through this perpetual, just like trying to improve how you feel and all that. And uh, it, a lot of these Instagram worthy implementations just don't, they're not useful. I'm curious about your background to move, to move back to that, like how you got to this spot. Can you give like a brief, like, how did you get to where you are now and why? Yeah. Um, so I'm a physical therapist and I have an office inside of a weightlifting gym here in Southern California in Orange County, California. And when I say weightlifting, um, specifically the sport of weightlifting. So this barbell snatch and barbell clean and jerk and, uh, and then team and field sport and individual athletes who use that type of training to augment their sport. And then some of the general public who just want to get in there and have, have fun and be, and be strong and, and do those types of things. So my office is inside of, of that gym, which is pretty cool. It's kind of the environment. Um, that's like a dream environment that I would want to be in. So I'm very, very lucky in that regard. Um, and I've pretty much, I've been out of physical therapy school for, seven years now. And I've pretty much been in that same type of environment the whole time, different facilities, but still, you know, kind of in the midst of that performance uh, space. Before that, you know, I originally went to school to be a strength conditioning coach. My vision was to be like Alabama's strength conditioning coach or, you know, have, have high hopes like that. And I did get a taste of the university setting and it's, um, it's rough, you know, a lot of hours. And, and so I was like, okay, I'll go private sector. And so that's what I did. I actually worked as a strength conditioning coach at a, several facilities. Um, and I felt like I just had a knowledge gap in regards to injury and, and movement. And I thought physical therapy would be the perfect bridge. And so that's why I decided to, to go back to physical therapy school in 2010. So just kind of taking a strength conditioning background and adding a kind of a physical therapy background uh, opened more opportunities. It, it helped me learn a ton and, and gave me more context to the whole rehab to performance and back spectrum and, and continuum. And um, I played, uh, I played football, American football in, in college at a small D one AA school. And then I've competed in the sport of weightlifting for a decade now for the last 10 years. So taking, you know, trying to walk the walk and, and, and be in that space, you know, both myself uh, so I can kind of better treat the, the athletes and the individuals that I work with. And, I guess what I do now is just kind of a combination of, of all of that stuff. Um, my experience as a coach and, and, you know, mediocre athlete. And then my uh, experience as a physical therapist, trying to just reverse engineer that and, and, you know, help the people that I work with. So you see patients on a day-to-day -day basis, and then you also have the clinical athlete component. Right. Yeah. So clinical athlete is kind of the online community that we've built and it's, there's a lot of facets, but you know, when it's down to the nitty gritty clinical athlete is a directory and a community of healthcare providers and coaches and trainers who, who are kind of on board with the training to rehab, to performance spectrum continuum again, where we're all kind of trying to work together. Um, and we've got a lot of students, we've got an educational forum and we do courses and all that good stuff. But, but yeah, clinical athlete, the, the mission is just trying to provide active people with professionals who they can trust and trying to provide those professionals with education, uh, within, you know, our, our health and performance space. So I've, I mean, selfishly for me, we started clinical athlete in 2000. 15. So it's been five years, the directory and the forum. And uh, I've met so many, I've learned from so many people in the community. I've met so many awesome, awesome clinicians. And it was just a kind of a pipe dream in PT school. And I was like, Hey, it'd be cool to have like a group of PTs who PTs who lift, so to speak, but not just lift, you know, PTs who understand athletes and physical therapists who are not just, well, I don't know how to get you back here because I don't know anything about, you know, beyond pink TheraBand and, and three sets of 10 glute bridges and also physicians who are going to say more than just find a new hobby or find a new, you know, take two weeks off 
and that goes with any healthcare provider as well. So that was the, that was the dream. And then we just kind of like started building a network and uh, made it a reality, which was fun. Where did that come from? Like the, the following that you have and the network that started to pay attention to things that you have to say? Man, I'm just, I was super lucky. Um, it was meeting, it was making connections and, and being in the right place at the right time, to be honest. I, in physical therapy school, I'd already planned to go back to where I was originally from, Louisville, Kentucky, Southern Indiana area, and had a gym there that I was going to put my office in, which I did when I graduated. And the owner of that gym made a connection with several people, one of which being uh, a guy named Chad Wesley Smith, who yeah. is the, the owner Juggernaut. of Juggernaut, yeah, Juggernaut Training Systems. So he was Chad was doing seminars and things with the owner of the gym. Uh, his name was Ryan Brown. And when I graduated from PT school and I started working in that gym um, by association, Ryan introduced me to Chad Wesley Smith. And Chad knew that I was a physical therapist and a, a weightlifter and a coach. And I think I wrote a, a saucy blog or two back then. And uh, Chad would be like, Hey, I, can I put that blog on the juggernaut website? And I was like, sure. And, you know, I started writing for juggernaut and then my writing became popular and Chad would say, Hey, you want to come out and help at this seminar we're doing? I say, yeah. And then it became, Hey, do you want to come speak at this seminar? And so juggernaut was, was really the catalyst. Um, and the entity that I had started with Ryan Brown, which was dark side strength, but it was like just YouTube videos and blogs, um, like nothing special. And I think that I was just consistent enough. And it was a time where the social media wasn't so saturated. And I was extremely lucky to have platforms that elevated me be, you know, juggernaut was already very established and very popular in the, in the performance space. And so all of a sudden I had this platform, and this audience. So in 2015, when we, when I wanted to launch clinical athlete, you know, I already, I had that, I had, I had that audience. So I was just very lucky. I was just very, very lucky. Um, and just fostering those relationships along the way, you know, understanding that that is a gift. Yeah. I'm, I'm so fascinated with what happens. You, you see it in every industry. Um, when you just do the right things and you're good the pieces that can fall into place, like for you, you know, I know you, you throw around the word luck and of course there's some element of, you know, being in the right spot at the right time, but bottom line, like you, you did all these things, like you wouldn't have materialized to where you are now if the articles sucked. And if, you know, if you sucked when you showed up and if you didn't have practical things to say, but I think it is interesting watching how things sort of unfold when you just like do what you love to do and and are good at it it's crazy i mean people ask me all the time well what's the vision of you know what's the five-year 10-year vision of clinical athlete and like i never know how to answer that question because if you had asked me five years ago what you know had i predicted five years ago that things would be as they are now it wouldn't have even been close and i'm sure that if i predict five ten years from now when it comes that time it's not even going to be close to what i predicted so you know, we've got these short-term goals and we know like our mission and these types of things. And it's kind of like, let, lets it evolve, you know, emerge organically. And it's fun. It's really fun that way. And we like to, we want to elevate people too. Cause I know how I came up and clinical athlete is a platform for other clinicians and coaches and students to, to do the same thing and, and to have a community and to make those connections. So just kind of paying it forward in that regard as well. Do you, I mean, I, like, it's funny to ask you this right after you just mentioned that, but as far as like five years ago, I guess the better question, what would you have said, you know, like, what would you have said your goal is? Yeah. Um, I think it would have been, you know what, somewhat, somewhat similar, but maybe not to the depth, like with, with when we first started clinical athlete, it was going to be just a directory, meaning this was going to be a place where athletes could say, okay, I have an injury, but I don't want to just do a random Google search for Joe Schmo down the street. He's just going to tell me to stop doing what I'm doing. I want to find somebody who's going to understand my goals. 
So it would be awesome if I had a specific search engine to be able to find clinicians like that who are, have already been filtered. And that's what the clinical athlete directory is. It's still very much live clinicalathlete.com. There's a big old map. Anybody can use it. Um, and these are people you've sort of vetted or yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. They, they apply. Um, I go through the applications. Our team goes through the applications. We have chats. They actually have to go into our forum. There's a whole big thing. It's a whole thing. Um, but yeah, so they, I mean, and it's uh, nothing's perfect, but it's certainly more filtering than just a random search. Um, and so I would have been happy with that. I mean, that was my original idea. That was it. And then it became this thing where we have so many of these amazing clinicians on this map. Like it would be awesome if we just had this think tank community or some type of platform. Oh, a forum makes perfect sense. And so we made the forum and that was not part of the original plan. And the forum is honestly kind of turned into the, the, the headquarters. Like everything kind of revolves around the forum. And that's the big thing in the community. It's like the forum, the forum, and everybody knows what we're talking about. And there's just, now there's five years worth of content in there. So you can imagine the, the you know, the depth. Um, and then it was these seminars. It's like, well, okay, it's all clinicians, but what about the strength and conditioning coaches and the trainers? Cause we're always talking about how we need to have these great relationships. And so how do we get them involved? And so we started having a uh, launching uh, weightlifting and powerlifting seminars where we have a room now with about a 50, 50 mix of, of clinicians and strength and coaches and trainers. And we're talking about barbell training and how to manage injuries, no matter, and performance, no matter what your lens is and your scope, because we can just kind of slide the scale over. So we started incorporating coaches and trainers, and now we have a growing body of students in the forum as well, almost like, like a different section, like a totally different section just for them. So it's just kind of built on top of itself. And I didn't really have that stuff in mind, you know, in the beginning, it just seemed like it was, we would just take the next most logical step. You know, this is, this is the perfect illustration of action is almost action is always the answer. You know, you, you could have sat there and tried to figure out what to do, but it was like, it, just taking action on the directory portion. Like you hear about this with startups, like they, they start thinking that they're going to be one product. And then as they sort of evolve and listen to what the market says, they end up being a completely different product, but you would have never gotten to that end. Like, you know, like Instagram started as a place where people <laughs> shared pictures, like photographers could share their pictures, you know? Yeah. And so I think that's interesting. Imperfect action is a, is a very interesting topic. This kind of agile approach to business that, you know, Silicon Valley has kind of, um, it's spread, you know, to the mainstream and, and instead of trying to map out every single detail to the nth degree for the next 20 years, what's the, what's the MVP, the minimal viable product? What's the next action item? Like what's the minimum that we can do to get this out to people so that we can actually collect feedback and start to iterate on our product. That is actually something that's counterintuitive to me innately because I am, I'm the paralysis by analysis guy. I will overthink something until it just will never, until it's just, well, we're just not doing that. <laughs> because I, because I thought myself out of it. Like I'm that guy. So yeah, this last five years has been a huge learning opportunity for me in that regard, because especially now with, with, the way that things are moving with social media and there's just like everything moves so fast. So if you're kind of stuck and you're like churning your wheels, you're going to get passed up. I mean, um, what, what has been cool to see is there's been um, obviously like uh, imitation is the best form of flattery as they say, but there's been many similar models um, that have kind of fallen or changed and we've, We've been consistent. What I'm proud of is we've added these things and we've innovated, we've changed, but we've been consistent with the core missions kind of the whole time. And that we, if anything, those have been strengthened. And that's what I'm most proud of is we haven't really had to have like to do like a hard pivot, um, which tells me that we were onto something from the beginning. And now it's just about making it continue to make it as valuable and um, attainable as possible. I think that's encouraging for probably a lot of people, especially like you said, you're a kind of a paralysis by analysis guy, which probably plays into some of your, why you're good at what you do. Um, but 
but being that you like overcame that sort of inherent nature in you that would want to analyze and think through a bunch of scenarios like how do you can you think of anything that led to how you were able to just sort of say you know what i'm just going to launch clinical athlete i'm going to start taking action because so many people are just whether it's something simple like they want to get in shape or they want to start a business or that you know they want to start something new they never start and like it's the starting that's literally the hardest part a lot of so like a, a lot of things that just kind of kept poking at me like um i mean a lot of books like uh, there's a book called scrum and there's a book called oversubscribe and there's a book called uh, story brand and like the biz kind of businessy um businessy but like putting philosophy and in, into business and these types of things where it's the, ne- the the point is you can have a skeleton you can have a plan you can have an idea of the direction you want to head but you have to be agile and flexible because it'll never go according to plan we are terrible predictors we're always going to underestimate the time that something's going to take and we're going to overestimate our abilities and so if we can recognize that from the very beginning we can say okay what's the next most important step. And I would hear that in every single book. And I would hear it in these like time management courses that I would take. And then my colleagues were learning about the same things. And so we would have conversations, but it wasn't a moment that necessarily clicked. It was just keeping continuously getting poked by this idea and seeing it work in action. Like when I finally would actually do it. And then I revert to my old habits you know, but I could start to recognize it when I would do it. And it was just this, it's still like, I still struggle with this. So it's not like, you know, I'm cured of this paralysis by analysis. Like it's, it's still something that I'm working on, but you start to be able to recognize it and you start to be able to trim the fat a little bit in your thoughts. And that next most important step thing takes a lot of weight off your shoulders because it's very easy. And what's interesting is you think what you have identified as the next important step is is the next important step but it's actually you could probably peel that back three more layers because there's like six things that you have to do before you even get there but we want to jump ship and you start to realize what it actually takes to build something you know over time and it's 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 not going to be perfect overnight anyway and so you just start it's just a mindset shift if i know that's not like a, a great answer but yeah, no, the recognition thing I think is interesting. Like it, you take action and then, you know, it's it's probably not logical to to try to tell someone that, yeah, you're just going to, if you just try, you'll have a moment where all of a sudden you won't have, you know, doubt or over analytical nature anymore. It's like, but if you can recognize it, you can change. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's not because the pendulum, we always get like as humans or the pendulum swings. So if you're a paralysis by analysis person and you're you're like wow like uh imperfect action and, and agile strategies is is liberating and now you're like ah structure doesn't matter just you know and everything you do is now half baked well that's not the point either the minimal viable product is minimal viable product it's not minimal product so that's a balance and i've already kind of i've made those mistakes too by putting something out there that's not even viable yet and calling that the mvp well that we hadn't gotten there yet so it's a learning, it's always a learning process, but you get so much more out of like that mistake because no, there, there's never something that just puts you under like one thing. And now nobody's ever going to listen right. to you ever. Like, like that's their fear. Like I have the fear of impending doom all the time. Like clinical athletes is going to be gone tomorrow for whatever reason. I just like when you have a business and you're doing those types of things, you have these irrational fears. But like if you put out a dud, cool back to the drawing board what did you learn from that experience but if you never put it out you never learn a thing all you do is dig your rut even deeper you know so yeah it's like action quantification action quantification back to back to back to back it's iterative yep yeah you can have both yeah i like that there's there's really nothing you can do that's going to completely put you under if you can get in that headspace like you know short of like murdering someone or right. you know, yeah, like yeah, something yeah, exactly. really bad like if you can sort of get in that headspace like i think that that removes a lot of the paralyzing nature of like just go learn in front of the world and adapt i try yeah and that goes with 
writing programs. I mean, I try to be as transparent as possible and put myself like, like even put the things that I'm doing with my athletes and clients, like, Hey, here was the program that I wrote them. And I'll just kind of put that up as a blog, like in, in the, the sense is this is not, I'm by no means the arbiter of what good training and rehab is. This is just what I did. So I'm putting it out there, uh, critique, give me your thoughts, questions. It helps me uh, in many ways. And maybe it'll help somebody spark some, some ideas. And if it sucks, well, at least it helps you understand why it sucks, you know? So um, just getting out of your comfort zone. Yeah. That's where do you think your kind of back to the, the technical side a little bit now, like where do you think some of your expertise comes from? Because I'm thinking like, like, you know, the industry I'm in, like I'm around whether it's sports scientists, athletic trainers, strength coaches all day long. And, you know, there's, it's somewhat rare that you run across people who, who are, know their stuff. And I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of ATs or strength coaches out there that want to be an authority that want to be, maybe they want to have a brand online. They want to be a trusted source. Where do you think that comes from? Is it how much research you put in? Is it like, on a nuts and it's bolts. probably a hard question to answer. But. Well, yeah, but I'm, there are, I, I, I do a lot of reading, so you can't get away from sticking your nose in some information and trying to learn like you just that's you can't get away from that and it comes it's but it's also then applying it and then where the magic really happens is reflecting on it so in the industry in coaching especially strength and conditioning coach especially in the university setting you're so busy it's hard to reflect on what you're doing. It's hard to take time to just have dialogue with colleagues and talk out cases and these types of things. Like you've got 72 programs that you have to write for 16 teams by tomorrow. You don't have time for that. So unfortunately, sometimes the setting affords you or doesn't afford you the ability to learn. And then the same thing can be said in physical therapy when you're, if you're working for, a, we call it a mill where you look on your schedule for the day and you've got 30 patients you know, three an hour and you're just running around with your head cut off and you're finishing up your documentation at 10 o'clock at night in your living room. Um, and then you do it again the next day. So sometimes those settings just don't allow you to grow. And that's unfortunate. Um, other times people are in a, and I was in this phase, some people are just not open to learning more than what they think they already know. And they're not open to change based on new evidence. And sometimes that's a personality thing, but sometimes it's just kind of where you are. Like, think about when you first started to learn about something, basically your first source tends to be the thing that you're biased towards, because that's just where you learned it first. And if down the line, something now kind of flies in the face of that, it's, that's hard. That cognitive dissonance is a tough thing to deal with. So you've got a choice. You can either basically like, feel like you almost have to start over now and invest time to learn this new potentially better answer or you dig your heels deeper into the ground and you close your door even tighter and you hold on to your priors um you know even even tighter in that sense and i think some people get so locked into that that they're just too rigid to uh, be able to take in new information and that may or may not come with a brand that they're also biased towards as well. So that's like a whole different part of the conversation. If, if you have, if your brand, if your ideology is essentially tied to your brand, it's a lot harder to step into another space because that's, you know, digging into your livelihood a little bit. So there's a whole lot of levels to this, but I, the best coaches that, and, and clinicians that I've interacted with and who I've tried to model are, are those who, can question themselves, can admit when they're wrong. And just naturally that lends itself to being able to learn continuously, truly learn, not just read an article and say you read it, um, but be able to think and be able to change your stance and change what you do, you know, on the floor 
if you feel like there's there's a better way. Um, and so that's what I've tried to do as well. And, um, you know, if it comes off that way, great. But that, those are kind of the traits of, of the people who I, who I trust the most. And, and um, which is sometimes counterintuitive. You would think like the people who are so sure of the right answer would be the people you'd want to listen to. But for me, it's the people who can admit and acknowledge the uncertainty in all of this, who, who I trust the most. Yeah, I think that's huge. And I think there's, there's an element too of, of this lack of ability of objectively reading or studying something. Like you look at a lot of bad decisions that we've made over the years, like from a nutritional standpoint or, or in any, and obviously in this field too, research wise, it's because of a, of a bad way of interpreting the research. Um, like that, that is pervasive. Like how I'm wondering if you have any, cause I, I think about this, like I think about how much this holds people back and on, it holds our country back or, or the world, mm -hmm. like what, whatever issue we're facing, like, how do we objectively, how do we get people to objectively look through paper and literature and understand and, and put it into context? You know, I think you really need, um, I think you really need groups and think tanks because evidence like being evidence-based is almost a buzzword now. And if you really think about it, like I actually don't know what it means because if you have, if you take 10 people, 10 people who have read the same body of literature on a particular topic, it's not unlikely that you're going to have 10 different interpretations of that literature. So who, who's evidence-based then within that's that circle? Is it the one who you agree with their evidence-based because they agree with what you think? Um, or are you all evidence-based because you all took the time to read the evidence? So <laughs> it's so, you know what I mean? It's so difficult, but I think the, the answers that are less wrong tend to come out in the herd on average. You're going to, if, if you ask, you know, pick the 10 people who you really trust in the field who have, um, different circles themselves and you give you get them to talk about a certain uh, body of literature there are going to be some things that they all agree agree on and those things may fly in the face of others who are trying to yell loud as well so you you just kind of you look at that and you make the decision yourself where this group of well-read people are at least agreeing on this part that's I'm probably taking that to the bank for a while until I need, I'm going to need some real compelling evidence uh, to, you know what I mean? Cause now we've, we've got, we've got the herd mentality, which can be a good thing um, depending on who it's coming from. So I think that, I think you've got to bounce ideas. We've got to bounce ideas off of each other. And I think we all also need to be more transparent with what we actually do because I'm pretty sure there are people who probably think because they've seen me have videos on YouTube that I just have these like hundred percent positive outcomes in my office or with my athletes. That's not the case. Um, I can't say that my outcomes are any more above average than the average. And I'd probably be pretty, uh, maybe they are, I don't know. I'd like to think so, but it's very, it, it, they maybe not. Um, but if I'm, if I'm putting my stuff out there and I'm being transparent with what I do, ultimately that's going to help me be better. And if we all did that, I think it would help everyone. And that goes from what we do literally on the floor with our programs. Like everybody wants to protect their programs. Like you, your program is not that special that you wrote. I promise you nothing on that program is anything that hasn't been done for the last 40 years so like, you know what I'm saying? It's, oh, yeah. it's, it's that it's also science. Um, a lot of most papers, at least in our field are behind paywalls. Now there's some ways to get around that, but that's illegal. It's, it's commonly done, but it's still illegal. It just, my point is science is the good evidence is sometimes hard to even get your hands on. There's no way you can pay 30 bucks every time you want to read a research paper but yet I'm trying to be evidence-based. So that's a huge barrier is just that system is completely flawed. It's, it's bass backwards to put the science, <laughs> like to put the evidence out of reach 
to the practitioner. Like, what sense does that make? So from the scientific process, they need to be more transparent. The papers need to, uh, you know, the journals put these um, limitations on the amount of like characters and words that can go into a paper. And then the method section, uh, like I have, I don't know statistics. I have no idea what they just did here. It's basically a black box. And it's sometimes it's hard to get a hold of the researchers. So like, even if you get the evidence, trying to take this one paper and apply it is damn near impossible because it's not going to be exactly what you need. It's not going to answer the question for where you are. And it's also impossible to read every single paper that comes from any particular topic because there are literally thousands and there's just and have a conversation that we've had right now. A hundred papers have just come out in whatever topic that you care about. So that's another reason that you should have people in your circle who are also reading, but together you guys are powerful because you're all going to, you have more bandwidth within a particular space. So I think transparency is huge yeah. um, to get past all of this. So have think tanks, be objective, be willing to admit when or change your mind when new evidence is presented and be transparent and i would even say from the objective point like that's a good that's a good thing to strive for but also accept the fact that you're human and that you're not objective so like that's a big distinction so try to you're striving for objectivity but understand that you are not understand that you are coming to the table with bias even research and data are not objective because the question that the researchers were trying to ask was a question they made up, subjective. The statistical methods they use to analyze the data is their choice, subjective. The model is their choice. The conclusions that they draw from the data, completely subjective. So this entire objective process is not objective. And just to even uh, acknowledge that, I think is a huge step to acknowledge your biases and, and the angles that you're coming into the conversation with in the first place is really, really important. Until the robots are running our research, we're, we're going to run into some issues. Well, I've been waiting. <laughs> Come on, Elon. Yeah, exactly. What, um, so obviously being cognizant of your time here, I want to go back to the, to the, to the beginning. Like this is again, not the favorite question probably of a practitioner because everybody's different. You know, it's like when you get a DM that says, Hey, my hips hurting Quinn, what do I do? It's like, mm -hmm. I don't know anything about you, bro. But for your, just your average listener, who's like, wants to feel better again, like wants to, you know, move better. What's some practical things that they can do? Like even just low hanging fruit. Yeah. I'll start with, I'll start with uh, mindset and expectations is that everything, everything is a process and everything takes time. So that's not the practical recommendation, but if you forget that and you don't, and you're not keeping that in the forefront of your mind, then nothing else matters. So just think of, and whoever's listening, think of anything that you've gotten good at and think about how you got good at it. And it probably didn't happen overnight. And the same thing happens with movement. So just bring it back to context. Um, and that thing that you got good at, what if your friend would have asked you, well, how do you get so good at that? I tried for like a week and I sucked. And your response would be, well, you didn't try long enough. Like, you know how long I've been doing this? Like, it's the same with movement. It's the same with tissue adaptation, getting in shape, building muscle, losing fat, all that stuff. So that's point number one. Point number two, movement, find your endpoint. Well, first of all, find what your goal is. So sometimes goals are just too intangible. Sometimes they're just too abstract. Well, I want to feel better. I don't know what that means. And you probably don't either. What does feel better mean? Does that mean you never want to experience pain in your life? Well, sorry, that's not going to happen. Does that mean you're never going to experience soreness or that tight feeling again when you do a squat? That's not going to happen either. Um, my squat looks miles night and day different than what it did 10 years ago. And I still feel very similar things. I'm just happy with my positions and my performance. And so like, I've accepted being a human and feeling things, but you gotta, you gotta cr create a little bit more of a, of a tangible, uh, something that you're striving for. So maybe it's within the exercise or the thing that you're trying to get good at. 
what would mean success or what would mean that you're on the right track? So my point here is try to identify some, some milestones. Um, I hesitate to say, even say the word goal because I don't want you to stop there. And I also don't want you to think that it was a failure if you didn't quite get to the exact thing that you wanted to because the process, the journey is really the destination here. You know, um, There is no set destination, but those things are first and foremost, try to identify something that you can actually wrap your brain around to get to a milestone and then take the movement and activity and kind of reverse engineer it. So let's take a squat, for example. You don't feel comfortable when you're in a squat. Well, what can you do to change the, the movement in some way to give you some type of opportunity for success? Well, we listed a bunch and you can literally make this a tick box. If you're one of those organized people, like, did I try changing the variation? Cause that would, that could mean go from back squat to front squat, to goblet squat, to split squat, to a, a hex bar squat. Um, so you got, you could probably think of maybe some more variations that you could try. So did I try changing the variation, tick that box off Did that help? If it helped do that, you don't even have to not do the other thing, but do that as part of a warm-up, part of a cool down. You can do it more frequently, typically, if it if it if it's more comfortable and it feels better. Tick off the box for range of motion. Ask yourself, am I able to do the movement a little am I able to do the movement relatively well at to some extent in the range of motion? But then there's a point where it just starts to go haywire. If that's the case get your practice at the range of motion that you can do it and try to nudge that threshold a little bit more and more over time. It's like learning to play an instrument. You kind of get good at a couple bars or measures and then you keep messing up at a certain point. And so you get there and you practice and you get past that one. And now you're, it's the next one that you suck at. So range of motion is kind of the same thing. Um, if it's for the squat, you'll put that box right where your positions start to break down or right where it starts to get kind of uncomfortable. And then, you know, over the course of every couple of weeks, maybe if that gets easy, you can drop it down an inch or two and play with that. But again, it's a process. So we're talking like over the course of three or four months, potentially developing a full range of motion squat. Um, doesn't always happen that long, but I like to slow, quote unquote, slow cook people, you know, if we're thinking about the long-term uh, goal here. The amount of weight. So this is the one that is the most duh, like the low, the lowest of all low hanging fruit, but it's also the one that people don't think about number one and number two, just don't want to let go of. So ask yourself this, are your positions, are your positions what you want them to be at light weights? But then when the weights get heavy, you start to feel your tight feeling or your movement starts to change. That has nothing to do with your range of motion. You have the range of motion with lightweights. You have the range of motion with heavyweights. What you don't have is the coordination and the strength to be able to sustain it under that amount of external load. So what you need to do is you need to find your technique threshold, whatever that, wherever the wheels start to fall off. And it's probably a lighter weight than what you want to admit. And you need to get more work there. This is deliberate practice. I'm not saying never go heavier, but I'm saying you need to increase the amount of practice that you get at that threshold. And it's like pulling your floor up instead of continuously trying to push the ceiling all the time. And when you know it, your threshold will improve over time. So weights that were giving you problems in the past or right at that threshold are easy now. And you have a new threshold and you just kind of keep bumping it up like that. Um, a lot of times that is, that's the fix. Cause people will say, yeah, you know, my hips just get really tight when it gets heavy. No, they don't get tight. You're just not strong enough. They just don't want to hear that, you know, but it's, it's an easy fix. So the load is a huge one. Um, the speed of the movement, if you slow it down, that gives you a chance to practice. That gives you a chance to actually be conscious and think about what you're doing, adding pauses, putting yourself on a metronome to slow down the cadence of your movement. So range of motion and tempo or the, or, you know, tempo is another tick box that you can use. Um, Thoughts on that stuff? No, that's that's so practical. Enjoy the process and just 
you know, some people just want to hear like one stretch they can do or one little quick fix, and then you can load 455 on your back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's I wish. Like, yeah, no. If you figure that out, you'll be you'll be a wealthy man. But yeah, like this this is practical. And then I would say with the stretches, because some again, some people like they're just like, well, I just like that stuff. You know what I mean? And um, it feels nice to stretch. And while I had, you know, this is the person type. Well, I admit that mechanical load and actually lifting the weights is what will change the tissue. I don't want to do like so much of that stuff that it's just, I get tired. It's fatiguing. It's hard. I want to do some of this easy stuff because it just feels better. So can I do both? I say, yeah, get your routine um, in the beginning. It's just that if it's 30 or 45 minutes long, you've actually probably lost the short-term benefit of the first things that you did. You'd like, it's just, it would be this perpetual cycle of just continuously rolling back to the first thing. So pick your two or three favorite things, spend 10 or 15 minutes and to anything that's a ritual, it'll get your mind right. You know, if if you come in after work, you've probably got a lot of thoughts and you're stressed out. That period of time is probably more beneficial to have that routine and start to get your mind right for the exercise session. than it has anything to do with the actual specific nature of the stretches or the foam rolling or whatever it is. And then beyond that, you can take more of that stuff or your favorites and put them in between your warm-up sets of squats, in between your warm-up, in between your sets of the split squats, if you're using those for ankle range of motion, in between sets of goblet squats. So you have this little mobility circuit going, but the intent has to be still high. You can turn your brain off for the static stretching and the, and the foam rolling, but when it comes to the drills and the exercises, you can't just go through the motions and, oh, I ticked the box off. I did them, did my 10 and just blast through a bunch of goblet squats. That's not going to get you anywhere either. That'll be a nice little warm up, but you're not going to change your coordination or, or skill habits with that. So it's deliberate practice is trying to make the most efficient use of your time. Um, and it's people hate hearing it, but it's being patient. Um, having a coach is nice because if anything, just to kind of give you context and be like, do you remember where you were three months ago? And they show you like a video or, or pictures like that was you. And now look where you are. Cause it's so hard to feel that type of change when you're the person in it, because those changes are so small on the day to day. You don't realize that you've made this transformation you know, weight loss can, you're looking, you're taking pictures and, and you're seeing the scale. Uh, but if you were just going by feel, it would be harder because you're just who you are. You don't feel like a quarter of a pound loss from the day before, but all of a sudden, you know, four to six months later, your movement looks so much different and you're in your move and your output is way better. You're moving more weight. You're doing more volume, moving faster and through more range of motion. Like you've exponentially improved without even realizing it. And so if you can quantify that somehow, just so you can know that you've made progress, like where your range of motion stop used to be where versus where it is now, that those types of things can help too. It's extremely useful. I think it's, it's like a a very clear path has been laid out in this, in the context of this conversation. And it's like, if you can just implement some of these things again, six weeks or six months of doing some of this is going to get you a lot farther than six weeks or six months of debating what's the best program or, you know, what's the best fix, like action, action, action. Definitely. Tell uh, people where they can find you on social media, but then also actually find you if they want to get work done or one of the clinical athlete providers. Yeah. Um, You can find me on uh, Instagram, DPT. Uh, Facebook, I've got a coach's page and a personal page. I use them both for, for business. Instagram's a business page as well. Um, but just content when I say business. Um, not super active on Twitter, but that is, I actually don't know what my Twitter handle is. Just type in Quinn Hennick. My, my name is unique enough where I, I think I pop right up. H-E-N-O-C-H. Yes. Right? Yep. And then um, clinicalathlete.com is where you can find the directory. I'm on my own directory, obviously. So you can find my contact information there and you can find the entire map. Uh, it's free for anybody to use and you can kind of zoom in on your area or type in your zip code and you can find who who's around. Um, and a lot of them are doing, you know, telehealth visits now. So even if nobody's close to you, 
uh, it's very likely that you could still find somebody who could help. Awesome, man. Well, this has been super good. I really appreciate your time. Of course. I appreciate you having me. It's been fun. And that wraps up our discussion. I hope you enjoyed it. Quinn is the man and someone who, if I, you know, I'm lucky to be out here in Orange County. If I do, fingers crossed, this doesn't happen, but, you know, go down with some sort of injury, which, you know, the the level that I train at is probably more likely than not. Uh, Quinn is going to be the person that I go see. And if you are wondering yourself, like, who do I go to? I don't know who to trust physical therapy wise. Quinn has put together, like he mentioned on the podcast, a really good directory. So go to that website, clinicalathlete.com, and you can search where you live and find someone who's been vetted to some degree and, and, you know, is experienced in also helping people who want to return to an active lifestyle, like an athlete, um, someone who, you know, if, if you're not willing to accept the answer of just rest for six weeks and don't do anything, or yeah, you're probably just never going to be able to squat again. Like for me, that does not work. Seeing a doctor and having them tell me to rest for six weeks. Yeah, no. So check that out. And lastly, I'm going to bring this up again. If you listened this far, last time I said to send me a quote from the office or post a screenshot of the podcast, if you were that stoked about it with a random quote from the office. Um, I will appreciate that anytime, anytime somebody wants to do that. But if you've listened this far, send me your favorite podcaster. I'm kind of curious to hear who people like to listen to. Um, I'm sure I'm going to get a bunch of Joe Rogans, which I love, but send me your favorite podcaster. You don't even need to give me an explanation. Just let me know. Anyways, thank you for listening this far. I hope this was useful and I will see you very soon for episode five.